Well, if you have a Bible in front of you, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 1, we're starting a new series this morning in the Gospel according to Mark. I've been looking forward to it for quite some time, and we finally get to start it almost at the new year, just after the new year starts. So if uh, you're able to do so, I'll ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Give ear to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and authoritative Word. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie." I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As the reading in Isaiah mentioned, uh, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask his blessing on his holy word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us that we might know Christ, that we might see him lifted up in its pages, and that we might repent and turn to him by faith and have life and forgiveness in his name. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Work in us by your spirit and change us even today. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, picking a favorite book or a favorite text is kind of like somebody asking you who's your favorite child. Uh, You really can't do that. Um, But there's something about the Gospels in particular that uh, there's just something about them. Uh, You know, as a pastor, as a preacher, we try very hard. It's not always easy to do, uh, but we try very hard, even in our readings, when Dan's reading the words here uh, earlier in the service, we try to to be Christ-centered in our preaching. And why is that? Because the Bible says that the Bible is Christ-centered. Every, everything in Scripture, not just the Gospels, not just the New Testament, but the entire Bible is about Jesus Christ. Jesus himself tells us that in Luke 24, 27, John chapter 5, and elsewhere. John 5, he says, Moses wrote about me, is what he says. Moses, the first five books of the Bible. They're not about Moses. They're not about Abraham. They're not about Jacob or Isaac or Joseph or anyone. Primarily, they're about Jesus Christ. Well, one of the things about preaching through the Gospel of Mark in particular, or any of the Gospels, is that it doesn't take a lot of work on the part of the preacher to stay Christ-centered, does it? It's all about Christ uh, at the forefront. And I thought this morning as we start a new study in in the Gospel according to Mark, it might be helpful to give at least a brief, a brief introduction to the book as a whole, Chances are, if, you're, uh, if you've been a Christian for a long time, if you've been reading the Bible for years and years, even if you've uh, become very familiar with the Gospels themselves, the four Gospels at the start of our New Testament, maybe you've even committed parts of them to memory, as I, uh, many of you I'm sure have, 
chances are the, the one gospel of the four that you've probably spent the least amount of time in is the gospel of Mark. For whatever reason, that seems to be the case, generally speaking. Uh, we, we tend to memorize passages from Matthew. We tend to memorize passages from John and even Luke. And Mark seems to get the short end of the stick because so much of Mark is found in the other Gospels, especially Matthew and Luke. Mark's Gospel is the second, obviously, in the order of our New Testament. But it's probably very likely that it's the first one that was written. Mark's Gospel, it used to be thought that it wasn't the case, but it's almost certainly the case that Mark was written first. Many scholars believe that the Gospels of Matthew and Luke were in some way, shape, or form based upon the Gospel of Mark, or that they used Mark as part of their source material in putting together their own Gospel accounts. There's so much, you might know, there's so much overlap or similarity between Matthew, Mark, and Luke that they've come to be known as the Synoptic Gospels. What does that word mean, the Synoptic Gospel? Well, optic, you know what optic means, right? You go to the optometrist to have what? Your eyes looked at or your eyes worked on if you have contacts or glasses you know that that word well the, the word sin there is not s-i-n it's s-y-n and it means with or together so the synoptic gospels are the gospels that share a common view uh, a common vantage point of the story of christ they read very similarly when you read matthew mark and luke they sound in a lot of ways very similar well the book of mark is easily the shortest of the four Gospels. That's not really why I picked it. I didn't pick it because it was the easiest or, or the shortest. Uh, part of the reason for the fact that Mark is so short compared to the other three is that Mark spends very little time, uh, at least as far as detail is concerned, on the preaching and teaching, the, the, the public discourses of Christ. He doesn't spend a lot of time. He, he mentions them, but he doesn't, and very often, he doesn't very often record them. You might know that in, in Matthew's Gospel, for instance, we have what's called the Sermon on the Mount. You might know where that is, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. That's a very large part of the Gospel of Matthew, 28 chapters long. Three whole chapters are one Sermon of Christ, and it's not the only discourse of Christ that Matthew focuses upon. Matthew is, in some sense, not like Mark, in that he seems to spend half of his time on the teachings of Christ not just the doings of Christ, not just the ministry of Christ and his miracles and things. Mark uh, seems to omit those things. He mentions them in passing, but he doesn't give us a lot of the details. Now, that's not to say that Mark doesn't think that Jesus' teaching is important. It's not, that, not really saying that at all. It's just that he has a, a little bit of a different emphasis. He even has a different audience uh, in mind. Many people believe that the Gospel of Mark was written first and foremost uh, for Christians, Gentile Christians, mostly in the city of Rome. And their, their concerns may have been somewhat different. He doesn't spend as much time as, for, for instance, Matthew does on proving things from the Old Testament. He does do that. He does that in our text. But Matthew does it over and over and over again. You'll see Matthew saying, this, is, you know, this fulfilled what was written by this prophet. He does it over and over again. Mark does it sparingly. His audience doesn't seem to have that as a major concern. Mark's gospel focuses on action. Mark's gospel is an action gospel. One writer has said that Mark writes with a paintbrush. He's seeking to, to paint a picture of who Christ is 
and what he has done and why he has come, Mark seems to be in quite a hurry to move the story along. If you're familiar with that, you may have noticed that one of the distinguishing marks of Mark is that uh, he, he uses repeatedly the word in English that's translated immediately. Immediately. Matthew uses that same word in 28 chapters. He uses it five times. Mark is 16 chapters long, and Mark uses it 41 times. It, it shows up in his gospel multiple times. In fact, in chapter 1 alone, it shows up 10 times. 10 times in the very first chapter that something happened immediately. That, that there's no wasted time. It's like, it's like when you watch the news, sometimes you watch the news and, and you'll see on your screen too often breaking news. Everything's breaking news. Well, if everything is breaking news, nothing's breaking news. If everything is a news alert, Nothing is a news alert. Well, that's not to say that immediately doesn't mean anything in the book of Mark, but Mark seems to be in a hurry to move things along. Mark wants us to hit the ground running when we read his gospel. You may or may not know that one of the requirements for a book to be included in the canon of Scripture, the canon of the New Testament, uh, in other words, for it to be accepted as Scripture, is it has to, be, uh, has to have apostolic authority. As you might guess from your grasp of history, that means anything past the first century really doesn't qualify. We didn't have apostles that, that walked with Christ in his earthly ministry in the second century. Well, to be canonical, to be included in the New Testament, it had to be written by an apostle, or it had to be written by someone in very close association with one of the apostles. Now, the Gospel of Mark, like all the four Gospels, is technically anonymous, our, our Bibles say gospel according to Matthew, to Mark, to Luke, to John. In the original manuscripts, the original copies, their names are nowhere found. The titles, very often in our Bibles, of the books, the titles aren't inspired. They really aren't that important. Mark did not attach his name to this gospel. Neither did Matthew to his, Luke to his, or John to the fourth gospel. They gave many clues, most of them did, as to who wrote them. But they didn't hit us over the head with it and say, I wrote this. John, John's gospel is kind of humorous the way he refers to himself uh, without referring to himself. And Mark almost doesn't do that uh, at all. Now, the church from the earliest days accepted Mark's gospel as scripture, as canonical. And his, the book of, of Mark, the gospel according to Mark, has been attributed to him, to Mark, since about the early second century. Basically, from day one, the church recognized Mark as the author and even said and taught and held that Mark was the author. Now, who is Mark? Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, okay, I, I think of the 12 disciples, the list. I don't recall there being a Mark on there because Mark was not an apostle, was he? Mark's in your New Testament many times, but he's not an apostle. He wasn't one of the 12. He wasn't added to that number. You know, the apostle Paul is technically the 13th, Right? In the early chapters of Acts, uh, remember Judas uh, betrayed Christ and hung himself and another one had to take his place? Well, it wasn't Paul. It was Matthias that was chosen by Lot to take Judas's place. Well, uh, Paul, Paul described himself as one born out of due time. He didn't walk with Christ during Christ's earthly ministry, but he did see Christ, the risen and ascended Christ, on the Damascus Road. He, not Mark, Paul was commissioned 
as an apostle by direct revelation of Christ on that Damascus road. Well, Mark didn't have that. Mark didn't have that, that uh, distinction. He's not an apostle. But Mark is very, very much closely associated with the apostles, not just with Paul, as we know from the book of Acts, but also with Peter. In, in some ways, I know I think of those two as kind of the main two. I know that's not really fair. Uh, that leaves John out. But, but um, Mark has a distinction of being very closely associated with, in ministry, with Peter and Paul, and also both in the city of Rome at some point. Uh, you'll find Mark's name mentioned at various points in the book of Acts. We studied through Acts not too long ago. And if, you're, if you were here for that study, if you remember or remember reading through the book of Acts, you'll know that uh, he's mentioned there quite frequently when you get to Paul's story. Uh, he's mentioned as the cousin of Barnabas, another familiar name in the book of Acts. Uh, John Mark, as he's also known as, accompanied Paul and Barnabas on some of their missionary journeys in the book of Acts. You might remember in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas had a division, didn't they? They had a split. They're getting ready to go on another missionary journey, and Barnabas wants to take, who does Barnabas want to bring along with them? Mark. And what does Paul say? Not on your life, nothing doing. Why, and why was that? At some point, Mark had abandoned them on one of their previous missionary journeys back in Acts chapter 13. So for a time, at least, Paul wanted nothing to do whatsoever with Mark. He, he cast Mark off. He didn't see Mark as trustworthy or, or, or someone to be, to be used in ministry. Uh, but later on in Scripture, the Scripture tells us that Mark had proven himself faithful and useful to such a, a degree that Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4.11, he said that he wanted Timothy to bring Mark with him. Why? Because he was, quote, useful for ministry. Think about that. At one point, Paul broke with Barnabas, the son of encouragement, over Mark. Because Barnabas wanted to bring Mark along. Paul wanted nothing to do with that. And then later on, what, is, what does Paul say? He tells Timothy, make sure you bring Mark. What a change by God's grace. In Philemon 1.24, Paul called Mark and Luke, two gospel writers, his fellow workers. That's quite the change from, I don't want anything to do with this young man, uh, to he's a fellow worker with Paul. A fellow worker with Paul. Where others had abandoned Paul, Mark later on had not. Mark also accompanied the Apostle Peter in the city of Rome, serving him in the work of the gospel. In 1 Peter 5.13, Peter refers to Mark this way, Mark, my son. His son in the faith. That's, that's about as close as it gets. That's how close Peter and Mark were in, in ministry and in, in, in life. So it's not really a surprise that it, you'll find in church history, church tradition, that at least from the late 2nd century, that, that people held that Mark's gospel was in essence Peter's gospel. That if you wanted to know what kind of the account of Peter, from Peter's perspective, which book did you look at? The book of Mark. Mark is in a, a very real sense Peter's account of the earthly ministry and life and work of Jesus Christ. Well, the first thing we find in our text, we want to get to our text itself, is the message of Mark. Mark lets us know what his message is all through the book, but verse 1 of the entire book, Mark 1, verse 1, he kind of gets right to the point. As is his fashion, he wastes no time. He says in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now you might, probably many of you know that the word gospel means what? Good news. 
It's an announcement of good news. Uh, and that good news that Mark has to tell us about, it's not just a philosophy. It's not just the good news about a way of life, a way of thinking or a way of life. It's first and foremost good news about a person. About a person. And that person is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel is all about Jesus Christ. It's not too much to say that really you could say that Jesus himself, his person and his work, who he is and what he has done, that he himself is the gospel. He's not just the content. He's not just what it's about, but he is the gospel him, himself. Now, where does, where does Mark find the beginning of the gospel of Christ to start? Where does he point us to? He points us back to the Old Testament, doesn't he? He points us back to the Old Testament. Now, both Mark and the Gospel of John start, uh, not to make a play on words, but with the word beginning. What does John 1, 1 say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And here Mark says the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, now, the similarity of those opening words of Mark and of John should make you think of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And I think that's intentional. The coming of Christ is in some sense, we are to think of the coming of Christ on the scene at the beginning of the gospel as being as momentous as God creating the heavens and the earth. It's, it's not just another book in the line of, of, of a long line of books. It's not just a historical happening, as important as it might be, that's just in the same long line of other things. It's, it's a new beginning, a new creation, it's in a sense, is what's being talked about here at the beginning of the Gospel of, of Mark. The coming of Christ is that momentous of a thing that he calls it the beginning of the Gospel. Now, he, we're going to see that he points us back to the Old Testament. The beginning isn't beginning outside of, in, in a vacuum. It's the beginning of something that was foretold in the Old Testament now, he points us to the Old Testament directly, doesn't he, in our text, but not to Genesis, but to the book of Isaiah. In verses 2 to 3, if you look at your Bible there, it says, As it is written, so he's connecting the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, with the Old Testament, with what he's about to quote. He says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, if you're reading along and you're not paying a lot of attention, which sometimes we're all guilty of, you might have missed the fact that Mark seems to include something not written by Isaiah in this text. Uh, when I first was preparing for it, I didn't realize it right away myself. And then I looked at it again and read some of the commentaries and realized that Mark's kind of, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of bringing in a text from Malachi that wasn't in Isaiah. And it seems as if he's saying that Isaiah wrote it. He says, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. That's not in Isaiah. That's in Malachi 3.1. Now, is, is, is this a mistake? Does, does Mark start us off on the wrong foot by by making an error in Scripture? Did the early church just not catch it? Were they just sloppy? Did they not, somebody not pull Mark aside and say, Psst, you know, if you're going to write an authoritative account of the Lord Jesus Christ, you might want to get the books right. 
you might want to not say that Mark or that Isaiah wrote something that he didn't write. Is Mark just a sloppy writer? Is there an error in Scripture right away off the get-go, right off the bat in Mark chapter 1? Well, the key here, I think, is to notice that Mark doesn't so much quote Malachi 3.1 as he does refer to it or allude to it. One writer I read said that uh, we shouldn't complain when he promises one thing and gives us two. I don't know that that's really the right way to, to, uh, to answer the problem, but the actual text, if you, if you have a Bible in front of you, if you want to look at it, I'll read it to you either way. This is what Malachi 3.1 actually says. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare, excuse me, prepare the way before me. He will prepare the way before me. What does Mark, uh, our Bibles put it in quotes, but there are no quotes in the, in the Greek text. Uh, Mark quotes it or alludes to it as this. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who is Malachi saying that this messenger is preparing the way for? The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, is who he is talking about in verse 1. And Lord, in Malachi 3.1, is in all capitals. When it's in all capitals, it means it's Yahweh. It's the Hebrew, it's a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. So who is speaking in Mark, uh, uh, but in Malachi, the Lord, it says that his messenger would prepare the way before the Lord himself, first person, before me, not before you or your way, the way Mark puts it. So Mark, I think, is pointing us to Malachi 3.1, not quoting it, pointing it out to us because it helps explain the quote from Isaiah 40, chapter 40 verse 3 that he does actually quote from Malachi helps us understand what Isaiah 40 verse 3 says notice at least two things by this text that Mark quotes first John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah he was that messenger of the Lord that was prophesied in Malachi and in Isaiah he's the messenger that was sent before Christ to prepare his way before him in the wilderness. Notice that John, if you think about it, John is not just a prophet. Now, many think that John was, the, the, in a sense, the last Old Testament prophet. He even dressed like one, which we're going to see in a minute. But uh, John is also the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy himself. That's what Isaiah and Malachi Tell us, it was John the Baptist of whom Malachi and Isaiah spoke in those passages we just quoted in verses 2 and 3. Now think about this. How many other figures beside Jesus Christ himself were actually prophesied about or foretold in the Old Testament? It's a pretty short list. I couldn't give you that list, but I know it's pretty darn short. Think about it. He's a prophet himself, just like Elijah was. He's actually the fulfillment of prophecy. Usually you think of Christ being the main fulfillment of prophecy, which he is. John the Baptist was such an important figure that he himself was prophesied of in the Old Testament in multiple places. More than once in the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. It's as if, at least in our English Old Testament, uh, the scriptures wanted us to be hanging on that last thing, that this is, this is the next thing to happen. And 400 years later, it did. What's the second thing that you should notice in Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, 1? 
Uh, it should make it clear to us that the one whose way John the Baptist was preparing for was Yahweh, God. And so who is he attributing that to in Mark chapter 1? Jesus. Who is Mark saying that Jesus is? Yahweh. There's no getting around it. Jesus is God himself. He is the Son of God, to use the word, the phrase that Mark used in verse 1. Mark is citing those texts not just to prove that John the Baptist was such an important figure, but he's also plainly telling us that Jesus Christ is God himself, the Son of God. The Old Testament teaches that, and the New Testament points that out. Well, the next thing you want to see in our text is the message of John the Baptist himself. Now, it might seem a little bit strange that a book about Jesus Christ uh, that as, as much of a hurry as John or Mark seems to be in, that he tells us about somebody else first. That he tells us about John the Baptist first. Now, if you are familiar with the Gospels, the four Gospels, you'll know that each one is not the same. Each one of the four Gospels does not include all the same details. You know, we just celebrated Christmas not too long ago. Um, how many of the four Gospels give us a real birth narrative of Christ out of the four only two now we can fudge and make a Christmas sermon as I've done in the past out of John chapter 1 but the only actual birth narratives are in Matthew and Luke Mark skips over the birth narrative entirely not because it's unimportant but that wasn't what he was, his intention wasn't to write about that thing but he doesn't skip John the Baptist none of the gospel writers skip John the Baptist in fact, they spend a lot more time on him than you might realize. You read through your Gospels, not just Mark. He comes up repeatedly. He even shows up in the book of Acts after his death when you have Apollos who only knew about the baptism of John. John was a famous, to use the best sense of that word, person in the first century in Israel. He was a pretty big deal as we see from our text. Who knows how many thousands and thousands of people went out in the middle of nowhere to hear him preach and to be baptized by him. Now that alone should convince us of his importance. Now Mark seems to be in a hurry, but he takes the time to introduce us to the herald of the Messiah, the forerunner of God's Messiah. John the Baptist was such a noteworthy figure in history that he's even mentioned by a secular historian. The Jewish historian Josephus, in his work, The Antiquities of the Jews, in chapter or book 18, actually gives a, an account of the death of John the Baptist at the hands of Herod. He corroborates the scriptural account of, of John the Baptist's execution. In verses 4 to 8 of our text of Mark chapter 1, Mark says this. He gives us a, a description of sorts of Mark, of his person and his appearance and his message and his diet. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. 
I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, Mark's description of John the Baptist is startling to us, our modern ears. Um, His wardrobe and his diet sound very strange to us. Let me assure you, his wardrobe and his diet sounded strange to them too. Uh, I, I, for years as a kid, would read these stories, and I thought, well, it must have just been the most normal thing in the world for someone in the first century. I thought they were cavemen, it must have been. They would just wear these skins of animals and drag a club around behind them. Uh, you know, that John would, would you know, dig in the rocks and trees for wild honey, that he would eat bugs. How many of you kids want to eat a grasshopper or a locust? That sound like a good dinner when you get home from church. Is mom going to say, hey, kids, guess what we got on the dinner table today? I uh, made, it, made it easy on myself, no cooking. Uh, we have locusts and honey. Uh, I would sign up for the honey part, but I'm not sure I would be too quick to eat the... It sounds like a dare, right? It sounds like something you wouldn't want to want to eat. Um, talk about living off the land. My first thought was, he's right by the Jordan. Don't they have fish? <laughs> Can't he do something? He's in the water. Can't he just put a line in while he's baptizing? But, uh, you know, we might be grossed out a bit at the thought of eating Locusts, the Old Testament actually says it's okay. It's, it's, they must have been so desperate for food that the Bible actually tells them. You know, the Bible often told them what not to eat, but it actually tells them these kinds of locusts, go for it. I'd have been like, yeah, I'm not going to make that my life verse. I'll eat something else. Thank you very much. Uh, William Henriksen writes uh, this. He says, those who enjoy shrimp, mussel, oyster, and frog legs should not find fault with those who eat the locust. Very, very helpful from a New Testament commentator. Um, now, his wardrobe isn't just strange, it's very significant. Camel's hair and a belt of skin or a belt of, of leather uh, should, if you know your Old Testament, should ring a bell, should ring a few bells. Second Kings 1.8 describes Elijah, kind of the, one of the biggest prophets you can think of in the Old Testament, as, quote, wearing a, quote, a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. So John the Baptist was wearing, in a sense, the mantle, the garment, of Elijah. You might know that Elijah never died. Elijah was whisked up to the Lord by a chariot of fire. Uh, and you Remember that he was, his, his mantle was taken up by Elisha. The name even sounds familiar. So... There was an expectation that Elijah was going to come back. He never died. On top of that, I think we're going to see that the fact that John the Baptist uh, is, is in a sense seen as the new Elijah or as Elijah coming back. The very fact that God gave the mantle of Elijah to Elisha, passed it on to someone else, I think sort of prepared or should have prepared the people to realize it might have been someone else wearing the same mantle. It might not be the same literal person. But Malachi chapter 4, these are the last words of your Old Testament. Malachi 4 verses 5 to 6, it says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the very last words of the Old Testament in our English Bibles tell us God was going to send Elijah again. So this prophecy of Elijah, the people knew about it. This prophecy regarding Elijah's return, people were very aware of it. Just like they were very aware of Deuteronomy uh, 18.15 where where Moses said that 
God was going to raise up a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, and you better listen to him. That's a paraphrase, but it's really what it means. You better listen to him. You listen to Moses. Well, this guy's greater than Moses. And as John the Baptist tells us, there's someone greater than him on the way. So John's apparel was no accident. The the things he wore were no accident. The fact that he was in the wilderness is also another connection to Elijah. Where did Elijah spend a lot of time? In the wilderness and actually right by the Jordan River. That was the, the area that he spent a good bit of time in. 1 Kings chapter 17 tells us that. And so the return of Elijah was a key part of the expectation of the Messiah who was to come. You might not realize this, but Mark, the Gospel of Mark, mentions Elijah at least nine times throughout his gospel. This isn't the last time he's going to bring Elijah up, at least by allusion or by any kind of mention. Mark mentions Elijah, including at the Mount of Transfiguration. Who actually does show up at the Mount of Transfiguration? Elijah's one of the ones on that mountain. Mark chapter 9. Where else is Elijah mentioned? He's mentioned by the crowd at the crucifixion of Christ. When Christ is quoting Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the Hebrew, it's Eloi, Eloi, Elah, my God, my God. And some of the crowd thinks he's calling for Elijah. Other people might even be seen to mocking him by saying that. In other words, you know, where's, where's your Elijah now? Let's see him call on Elijah now. Because they didn't believe that he was who he said he was. In John 1.21, the priests and Levites actually asked John the Baptist if he was Elijah. There's a reason for that. There was an expectation. There's a reason that thousands and thousands and thousands of people from Judea and Jerusalem went out in the middle of nowhere. Where, where was Judea? Oh, excuse me. Where, where was the Jordan River? Remember, remember the book of Joshua? After the exodus, after the wilderness wanderings? Where did they have to cross? What river did they cross to enter the promised land? It's the border. It's the outer border of the promised land. They had to go all the way, basically, to the outdoor, outdoors to be with John, to be baptized. Going, the fact that he chose the Jordan River or that God sent him to the Jordan River is very significant. It's like a do-over. You people are in sin. It's like you have to go out and come back in as new people. That's really what the significance of the Jordan River in the wilderness is. And remember, those Pharisees, those priests and Levites, they asked John if he was Elijah. What did John say? John said no. Now, Jesus later on tells us, yes, if you're willing to accept it, he is. He says, Matthew 11, verses 13 to 14, Jesus says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. That's an amazing statement. Your whole Old Testament prophesied until John showed up. If you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So Jesus says, he's not literally Elijah, but that's the Elijah that was promised. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that promise of the return of Elijah. Well, what was John the Baptist's actual message? What did he, not just what did he eat, not that he, that's not important, but what did he preach In verse 4, Mark says that John came proclaiming, quote, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John preached repentance. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself preached repentance too, didn't he? In fact, 
Chapter 1 of Mark, what's the first words that we hear? We're not there yet, but what are the first words we hear out of Christ's mouth when he preaches? Verses 14 to 15, it says Jesus was, quote, proclaiming the gospel, the good news, same word, the gospel of God, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Sounds like Mark has a, has a theme that he's hitting on. John preached repentance. Jesus preached the same thing. He preached repentance. So repentance, we might not think of this in our day, but repentance is a vital part of the gospel message. Did the apostles preach repentance? If you know the book of Acts, you know that they did. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 39, we read this. Now, when they, the crowd, heard this, heard Peter's preaching, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? You know, where's the application of the sermon? What do you want us to do? We're, we're terrified. We're cut to the heart. We're convicted. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Repentance is part of gospel preaching. What, what is repentance? It's always important to define our terms. Uh, the word itself has the idea of simply turning around. If you were going this way and now you're going this way, or a change of mind is also one of the ways it's defined. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87, it has a definition of what it calls repentance unto life. Repentance unto life. That's the kind of repentance that saves, in a sense. And this is what it says, question 87. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension, a grasp, of, of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin, do what? Turn from it unto God with a full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. So what's repentance? Repentance is, I'm going this way. This way is sin, rebellion against God. Repentance is, I want to turn to God. Well, you can't be turned toward God and turned toward sin at the same time. If sin's that way, God's that way. Repentance is turning from that to, to God. Repentance is a key part of the gospel message, and it always has been. Repentance is not legalistic. There's nothing legalistic about the biblical notion of repentance. It's not to be understood in any way as earning salvation or meriting God's forgiveness by our works. Repentance does not earn forgiveness. If you repent and believe in Christ, you're saved only by Christ, by faith in him and his righteousness alone, not your own. By turning to Christ, uh, you turn to Christ, it necessarily involves turning from sin. He saves us from our sins. We looked at that, we looked at Matthew 1, 21 over Christmas. He, he, you call his name Jesus, why? Because he will save his people from what? From their Sins. Thomas Watson, in his book on repentance, writes this. Repentance is a pure gospel grace. The covenant of works admitted no repentance. There it was, sin and die. That's the covenant of works. You break it, you're done. There's no do-over. There's no mercy. There's no anything. Repentance, he says, came in by the gospel. Christ has purchased in his blood 
that repenting sinners shall be saved. The law required personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. It cursed all who could not come up to this. Cursed is everyone that continues not in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Galatians 3, verse 10. It does not say, he that obeys not all things, let him repent, but let him be cursed. The law doesn't say, if you sin, just repent and that will make up for it. That's what he's saying. He says, thus repentance is a doctrine that has been brought to light only by the gospel. Without Christ's death on the cross and the good news of that death and resurrection, there is no offer of repentance. Why? Because sin can't be made up for by repentance. You can't break God's law and say, well, I'm going to make up for it by my bad attempts at obeying it. You've already broken it. Repentance does not make up for our sins. It does not merit righteousness before God. Only Christ and his death and resurrection does that. Without Christ, there is no repentance. Your repentance does not pay the price for your sins. Only the cross of Christ can do that. Your repentance is not the righteousness that will enable you to stand before the judgment of a holy God. Only the righteousness of Christ imputed to you by faith does that. Repentance itself does not save, but neither will you be saved without it. See the difference? You must repent to be saved, but your repenting isn't what saves you. Christ is, and only Christ is. Well, what else or whom else did John preach? Did Mark preach or John the Baptist preach? What what was his message? It was a message of repentance, but it was also a message first and foremost about Christ. That's what he says in verses 7 to 8. It says, and he preached saying, so he preached repentance. He also preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John, Mark, John's central message, just like Mark's central message, was Jesus. As great as John the Baptist was, and we should think of him in very great terms. John the Baptist was, Jesus said, no greater person born of woman than John the Baptist. And what did John say? John said that he wasn't worthy to stoop down and untie Jesus' dirty sandals. That's the job of a slave. John says, you're all, basically, you're all coming out to hear me. Thou, I mean, think about the crowds. Thousands and thousands. Of, what, what it must have looked like, we have no idea. Thousands of people coming out, hearing John preach. They confessed their sins openly and were baptized in the River Jordan, confessing their sins for the forgiveness of their sins. And what does John say? You're all coming out to hear me, in a sense. I'm not even worthy to be Christ's slave. I'm not even worthy to touch his feet, to untie or un- untie the strap of his sandals. That's, that's how great Jesus is. Because Jesus isn't just some prophet. He's the Son of God, as Mark says in verse 1 of his gospel. Have you repented of your sins and turned to the one who is mightier than John the Baptist, the only Son of God, Jesus Christ himself? Have you turned to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and forgiveness of your sins. That's Mark's point. Mark, Mark isn't just giving us information to give us information. He wants us to see who, who Christ really is and turn to him 
to have life. That's Mark's message for you today. Turn to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and have life and forgiveness in Him. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your scriptures. We thank you especially for all of it, but especially for the Gospels that point us right on the face value to Jesus Christ. They point us directly to him. Thank you that Mark, by your inspiration of your spirit, tells us exactly who Jesus is from the very opening pages and words of this Gospel. We ask that you would give us grace to see him lifted up in its pages and in the preaching of it, that we might be strengthened in faith in him, and look to him alone for our salvation. We ask if anyone here this morning does not yet know you and does not yet have their sins forgiven, that you would work in their hearts, open their eyes, give life to the dead, that they might repent of their sins and turn to you by faith in your Son, the one who is mightier than John, the one who is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And salvation is found in no one else, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.